This is the story of how Australia and the world are facing transformational change at a rapid pace. From shifts in geopolitics, economic uncertainty, climate change, disruptions to democracy, rapid leaps and bounds in technology, and social unrest. We've seen a lot happen in the global economy in the past few years. It has forced nation states to reevaluate nearly all aspects of how they function, especially as economic and social change that used to take decades now occurs in much tighter timeframes. There are certainly many challenges we face, but there are also great opportunities for those who are able to develop solutions and be better prepared to navigate a fast-changing world. So in the near future, how will we trade, how will we work, rest and play? What's the future of work, the future of finance and the future of living itself? I'm Tim Harcourt and welcome to The Great Transformation. As technology improves and we become richer, we have the potential to live longer, healthier lives. Life expectancy is constantly going up, but is there an upper limit? How will this happen? Will advances in medical technology enable this? What does it mean for social policy, family structure and population? Are there ethical issues at play? To answer all these questions, I'll speak to one expert who will help us paint the picture. I'm joined now by Elizabeth White, partner at Baker McKenzie. She has extensive experience advising clients in the health and life sciences, digital health, and intellectual property sectors. So Liz, welcome to The Great Transformation. Thank you very much. Now, healthcare in, in Australia, we're, we're quite innovative, aren't we? What's the, what's the state of play? Sure. So Australia has a very rich history um, in innovation in healthcare. You know, going back in time, electronic pacemakers, cochlear implants, um, Professor Fiona Woods with the spray on skin. There's so many examples um, of healthcare innovation that have come out of our country. Um, fantastic success with com companies like CSL, ResMed, Cochlear. Um, so I think we've created circumstances that lead to success in, in innovation. Um, Australia remains a really important test market um, in the healthcare sector. So something like a thousand plus clinical trials are commenced each year in Australia, um, which is really important for the industry. Um, in my view, um, we need to continue to set up Australia for success in healthcare innovation, and that's going to require a continued focus on funding um, and incentives like the patent box incentive that we saw developed a couple of years ago, but has not yet been implemented um, by the Australian government. So they're all going to be really important factors to continue uh, the trend of healthcare innovation in our country. It's interesting, you know, I, I visited the cochlear plant in, in, in Chengdu and I've visited ResMed, uh, CSL um, overseas as well. Does our size of our country mean that we're quite good at testing a product out on a smaller population to see how it will run and then we can go to larger populations in Asia or North America? We've certainly seen that and the kind of Australian demographic lends itself to kind of initial clinical trials in Australia and, and exactly as you point out Tim we've seen that kind of success um, with Australian companies first testing the market in Australia 
And then we've seen companies like CSL, Cochlear and ResMed now penetrating the US market, which is clearly um, on a much bigger scale um, and far more potentially lucrative. So I think, um, you know, we do set ourselves up well for the foundational steps being taken in Australia and then seeing these innovations and companies kind of take their products to the world. I'm quite fascinated by this because I can understand Australia having natural advantages in minerals and uh, and farmland and these sort of, you know, endowments that we have. Um, but everyone's got hospitals and doctors and scientists. Why has Australia done so well? It's it's a good question. I mean, I think that it's a combination of factors. Um, so skills and the skill set um, of Australians, so creating an environment where we are allowing our scientists and our biomedical engineers to flourish um, and, importantly, to stay in Australia and support innovation in Australia, which is a real challenge. Um, as I mentioned, the kind of right-size market, I mean, Australia is the third largest health care market in Asia. Um, and so it's a really important market. Um, the demographics of our population can lend themselves well to this type of product development. Um, so I think all of those factors ha- have led to Australia um, being successful in this area. Um, and in fact, medicines and vaccines are our largest manufactured export to the world. Um, so that kind of shows you how important um, the healthcare industry is um, to our economic situation in Australia. And by demographics, do you mean an ageing population or a multicultural population or, or a bit of both? Um, a little bit of both, yeah. So I think that um, a multicultural population is really important in relation to various clinical trial environments. So we are able to deliver um, on that. Um, but also, as you say, um, demographics in terms of age is also really important for different types of medical treatment. Yeah, I was thinking of, you know, obviously, skin skin issues with, with ageing. But I was thinking... People of different cultures, uh, different ethnicities, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes have ingrained health issues, and perhaps being more multicultural means you've got, I, I guess, more more options to test types of things. I think that's right. Yes. Yeah. So again, it just sort of comes to the fact that um, Australia has that. Um, ability to test different products on different demographics. Um, Of course, we don't have the scale of population of other countries like sort of India or China, etc., which are also really important test markets for clinical trial um, arrangements. But uh, we just seem to have a a nice symmetry of demographics and market size um, that attracts that kind of clinical testing in Australia. Does that work the other way too, in the sense that international companies that may not be ready to try something in China or India just yet might see Australia as a good test case or test bed to to try something new? Yeah, look, I think most um, large-scale clinical trials are multi-market trials and multi-centre trials. So you do tend to see um, the bigger players who are doing their uh, clinical trials in multiple countries um, at the same time. Um, But it depends on which phase of clinical trial they're looking at. Um, So they might use Australia for earlier stage clinical trial testing and then move to multi-centre trials in, in a range of different geographies and jurisdictions. So would it work the other way in the sense that international companies, before they tested in China or or India, might come to Australia first just to try things out? Possibly, yes. It depends on which phase of clinical trials we're looking at. So um, some companies might choose to do earlier stage clinical testing in Australia. Um, Once you get to multi-centre, sophisticated clinical trials later in in development, then you tend to see multi-jurisdictional and multi-geography clinical trials being operated. So I wouldn't expect those to be just limited to Australia. Now, we know about 
big pharma and sort of assembly line pharmaceuticals we saw it during the the pandemic. Um, to what extent do you think that people are now moving to self testing and sort of looking out, taking taking ownership of their own health? Is that a, a trend you're seeing in the healthcare industry? Definitely. So we've seen over a number of years now a kind of rise in patient advocacy. Um, patients look for information regarding their own health and their own healthcare options. So that's been a trend I think we've seen for a number of years now. Um, as you mentioned, I think that um, you know having to access healthcare virtually during the pandemic, etc., has only kind of made that trend stronger. Um, over the last couple of years. Um, we're also seeing, I think, momentum around more patient care in the home. So the concept of hospital in the home and increased patient services on delivery of healthcare, including pharmaceuticals in the home. So for example, patient care programs that might provide additional nursing support for intravenous drug delivery at home, rather than those patients going to a hospital or a clinical setting. Other types of patient support programs to offer ancillary treatment options for patients to increase patient adherence to particular drug regimes, etc. So I see a lot of activity in that space around how to support patients take care of their health care, always, of course, under the supervision of a medical practitioner, but a lot more kind of happening outside a hospital and clinical setting. Um, I think the really interesting area is around precision medicine. So again, rather than you referred to kind of assembly line pharmaceuticals, um, I think we're seeing a real shift to kind of precision medicine getting investment. Um, so not just delivering drugs that are supposed to treat everybody, but far more precise development of drugs that are for a particular population, um, leveraging all the work that's been done in genome mapping, etc., to deliver more targeted healthcare. And with more, I guess, more knowledge of uh, genetics and the types of things that affect people, then we'll have more chance of precision medicine being successful. Exactly right, yes. So, in fact, I was um, reading a report recently that was by Australia's chief scientist um, some time ago, Alan Finkel, saying that the great challenge of the 21st century is moving from universal healthcare in Australia to universal precision healthcare in Australia. We're incredibly fortunate with our healthcare system um, in our country, but that is the next transformation, um, according to uh, Dr Finkel. And I guess if we're, we can only um, build so many hospitals, we can only staff so many doctors and nurses, ultimately some sort of responsibility for patients themselves can can, I guess, assist in healthcare delivery. I think that's right. And again, we've seen during the pandemic the enormous pressure on our healthcare system and healthcare practitioners in Australia. Um, so I think that, you know, those are issues that remain challenges for government and, and clearly need to be addressed. Um, but I think the phenomenon around patients kind of taking care um, of their own health and looking at what resources can be accessed for care in the home will be very important going forward. Now, I'm interested in, during the pandemic, um, the intellectual property issues, because we sort of had pharmaceuticals and, uh, you know, wanting to be first off the block and protecting their IP. And then we had the issues of, you know, testing. And then, of course, we have, you know, equity, you know, throughout the world for vaccines and so on. Uh, do you think the, the IP issues do get 
mixed up a lot with the, the testing issues and some of the other complexities? That's a fascinating area. So um, I did do quite a lot of work during the pandemic in relation to vaccine development and looking at the types of issues you've raised. So um, there was an incredible sense of collaboration um, across pharmaceutical companies, with governments, um, with other researchers and funders um, during those early stage of the pandemic. It was absolutely inspirational to be part um, of those activities. Um, so I think we saw what can happen when necessary around very, very quick um, innovation and collaboration um, amongst scientists and, and others. Um, I think that the interesting thing around the IP issues during that time were concerns not really around information sharing, because I think that happened in, in largely an optimal way, um, but around issues of equity and compulsory licence arrangements in terms of access to IP and manufacturing of drugs, either vaccines or COVID treatments um, in less developed countries. So we did a lot of work with various innovator companies around what that landscape looks like. Um, the concept of compulsory licence licensing of your IP assets are regimes that are in place in all the major markets throughout the world as a result of TRIPS obligations, um, but have not really been tested very often. So I think that that was an area of absolute focus um, for innovator pharmaceutical companies as to what that would look like um, during the pandemic. Um, as it turned out, those regimes were not leveraged um, by many governments um, during the pandemic. And I think that the equity issues that you mentioned have been handled in different ways around access to vaccines and, and treatments, et cetera, without having to kind of use the compulsory licensing regimes in the IP laws of, of various countries. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, but TRIPS refers to the IP issues you take when you go beyond borders in terms of trade agreements. Yeah, so TRIPS is, is kind of a fundamental um, instrument that requires certain countries who have signed up to TRIPS to put in place regimes for the protection of intellectual property. So it mandates the type of protections that must be available in a TRIPS country. Um, so everything from sort of trademark protection, patent protection, etc. Um, but the TRIPS provisions include an obligation to have a compulsory licensing regime available um, in certain circumstances so that IP assets, whilst they are absolutely secure um, and very, very important assets for companies, um, do not impede the need to access certain types of inventions and innovations in a situation like the pandemic. So the, the rationale is if we all sign up to TRIPS, then we can allow vaccines or whatever we need to flow quickly to where it's needed across borders? That's that. That's the kind of fundamental um, of the regime. But as I said, those provisions were not tested um, too much during the pandemic. I'm really interested in um, what you were saying um, about sort of self-service by, by patients and, uh, and what the implications will be for artificial intelligence. I mean, with AI, I mean, if, if people... Uh, not just aged care, but in, in, in healthcare can administer a lot of it themselves with AI, that, that's, that could be quite revolutionary, couldn't it, with, with administering healthcare? Yes, look, I think um, there's no doubt that um, AI in the healthcare setting um, can be revolutionary, and I think that it already is starting to be a game changer in particular areas. 
I think with any technological innovation in healthcare, it comes with both opportunity and risk. And we're constantly trying to balance those issues um, in a healthcare setting. So, so far, we've seen AI deployed in a range of different ways. Um, one of the most kind of exciting ways is around mapping big data um, and the benefits of using AI, for example, in um, diagnosis, in radiography, etc., um, used as a tool to assist healthcare practice practitioners um, to be better, frankly, at, at diagnosing and, and, and seeing different things on images. So we've already seen AI being used in that context for a long time. Um, there's lots of AI chatbots being used, to your point around self-service, kind of um, patients and consumers seeking health advice um, using AI tools. I have no doubt that people have been using chat GPT um, to try to find answers to healthcare problems, um, etc. Um, I think the real Really fascinating thing we'll be seeing how AI develops in um, clinical research. So already we're seeing some companies using AI in clinical research to try to narrow the kind of target molecules, etc., or different ways they can use AI in the context of mRNA technology. And I think that will be fascinating because that has the potential to really accelerate research timelines in healthcare, delivering benefits to everybody. Um, so I think it is fascinating and I think it can be a game changer. Um, as I mentioned though, with opportunity comes some risks and we need to balance those. Um, and at the moment, the use of AI, particularly in the medical device context, um, is not uh, yet well regulated. So um, that we do not have established regimes um, in countries throughout Asia around the use of AI in developing medical device technology. So there's a big industry push at the moment for clarity. You know, they want to get products to market quicker. They want to bring these services to patients for their benefit. And so that's going to require, I think, um, more interaction with regulators as to how this type of technology is going to be regulated um, and transparency in that process. Now, talking to you about AI and intellectual property makes me think you having a master's in bioethics is pretty useful in your legal work, is it not? Because you seem to be having to grasp a lot of ethical issues going forward? Yes, that's an interesting question. So, um, you know, when we're talking in a healthcare setting, um, the, the scientists really and the engineers kind of lead the way on what we can do and innovation that we've been discussing. Bioethics is really around um, if we can do it, should we do it? And how should we do it? And so for me, um, having a master's in bioethics provides a kind of backdrop to those questions. And my practice focuses a lot on regulatory and policy issues in a healthcare setting. So it does provide very useful context for me in approaching those issues. Now, I've been dying to ask you about longevity. Um, can we live forever? Should we live forever? What are the ethical implications? What are the, you know, what are, what are the technical constraints? It's a big issue. What do you think about living forever? It's a very big question, Tim. <laughs> um, so, look, I think that um, in terms of longevity and ageing, um, certainly the data and the forecasts are telling us that we have an ageing population in Australia. Um, so uh, on the UN data I saw recently, by 2035, about 20% of the population will be over 65. Um, and then the stats playing out to 2050 show us that absolutely we will have more people 70 plus, 80 plus, 95 plus um, in 
in Australia. So um, we do expect to see uh, longevity in, in that sense. Um, back to my comment earlier, I think we need to think very carefully about um, just because we can, should we? And for me, the balance is around sort of longevity and quality of life. So I think there's some fundamental questions there um, around do we want to live longer and, and do we want to live forever um, in that sense? What does that look like? Um, from a personal perspective for individuals and for our, you know, our community more generally. I guess the older you get, your view probably changes on it. I always think about the superannuation. I mean, you'll have to have a defined benefit scheme to keep going. Goodness knows how much we'll have to have in our super funds <laughs> if we're going to live to 95 plus. Um, so yes, I mean, there's economic considerations as well. And do you think that, I mean, ultimately, um, as we make more you know, technological breakthroughs in healthcare, I mean, we do sort of raise the bar. So, you know, we get rid of, you know, diseases that our grandparents would have had, would have wiped out, you know, polio and so on. We, we get rid of those things. And then ultimately we do raise the bar. So we do think that living to 85 or 95 or 100 is is normal, where once, you know, 65 was the, the maximum age. I think that's right. And if you look where there's a lot of attention in research, it is obviously around oncology, um, as well as um, dementia, Alzheimer's, etc. These are all um, conditions that generations ago um, would have meant that people were not living over 60, etc. So I think we are seeing a real focus on those areas that are leading to greater longevity for the population. Um, again, to my earlier point, though, the question is also around quality. So um, preventative healthcare is so important. And we're seeing, for example, fantastic data around early intervention on Alzheimer's. So um, not, uh, we, we might be able to have uh, innovations that mean people live longer, but also better thinking around living a good quality of life um, by using preventative medicine, by using genome mapping and other kinds of um, tools that we have available to us to assist people live a better life um, as well as a longer life. And, you know, Australia being well known for a good lifestyle, but good quality of life also sort of helps our brand with the rest of the world. Possibly, yes. I mean, we're all very lucky to live in this wonderful country. So, uh, yes, I, I think that there are, again, um, issues around equity, as you mentioned earlier, in terms of access to basic health care, but also perhaps access to different types of health care um, tools and environments that um, we in Australia are, are very fortunate to have. Well, Liz White, thanks for sharing your insights on the Great Transformation. Thank you very much for speaking with me. Well, that's it for our health episode of The Great Transformation. Thanks to Elizabeth White for helping us out and providing those insights about our increasing longevity. A special thanks to our knowledge partners at Baker McKenzie for making this series possible. I'm Tim Harcourt, and this is The Great Transformation.